The Word of God for our consideration this morning comes to us from Peter's second letter, chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. To be sure, we were not following cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the powerful appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from within the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased." We heard this voice which came out of heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the completely reliable prophetic word. You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Since we know this above all else, no prophecy of scripture comes about from someone's own interpretation. In fact, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who truly is the radiance of God's glory. If you ignored my advice and did take in the Super Bowl halftime show last week, then I hear that you saw quite the show. Now I did, just for uh, informational purposes, have to read a little bit about the halftime show and watch a few clips of it just so I knew what I was talking about. But mercifully, last Sunday during the Super Bowl halftime show, it was bedtime and I was Instead of watching Rihanna, I was able to read the boxcar children to my children. So I didn't get to see it live, but those of you who did know that it was quite the show. It was almost defiant of reality, wasn't it? I hear that Rihanna was, was floating hundreds of feet above the field, and there were dozens, maybe hundreds of dancers with her, uh, flailing their arms in the air and gyrating their hips in pretty remarkable Harmony, and it's amazing how that many people can all do the same thing all at the same time. There were strobing lights, and there were fireworks, and there were all sorts of sound effects. It was almost, from what I hear, sensory overload. Now, for those who watched it, you know what I'm talking about, but for those of you who didn't, you might think that sounds too incredible to be true. That sounds kind of unbelievable. That seems to defy. Reality. Unfortunately, that's how many people approach the Bible. They approach it as if it defies reality, as if it can't possibly be true because there are too many unbelievable things in it. They believe that the Bible should be placed in the fiction section of the bookstore, that it's just a bunch of myths and fairy tales that were invented by some men. Now, Peter confronts that idea, that false idea about Scripture head on. And he, he uses as his jumping off point the transfiguration. So he, he draws a line between his experience on that mountain of Jesus being transfigured to what we have still today, where we see Jesus' glory in the pages of Scripture. And so linking those two will be the focus of our sermon this morning. Sowing doubt in the Word of God and the truthfulness and the veracity of the Word of God is nothing new. In fact, that's probably the oldest play in Satan's playbook. 
He already sowed that lie in the Garden of Eden when he said to Eve, did God really say? That's one of Satan's favorite things to do, is to question, to to lead us to question, to lead us to doubt whether God's word is actually true, whether he actually means what he says. And Peter has absolutely no time for this. He, He confronts this skepticism, this satanic skepticism head on. He says, to be sure, we were not following cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the powerful appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is speaking on behalf of all of the other writers of the New Testament, and he's defending their work. He's saying, we didn't just come up with this out of thin air. We didn't just invent this. We didn't imagine these things. We were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. And that word majesty refers to Jesus' divinity. The fact that at certain times in his ministry, He pulled back the cloak of his humility and revealed who he really was, the Son of God. And and Peter and the other apostles were there to see it. They witnessed it. Think of Jesus turning water into wine. Peter and the other disciples maybe even tasted that miraculous wine. They ate the food that Jesus provided from a little boy's lunch of, of a few fish and some loaves of bread. They ate that food. They saw Jesus make a a buffet for thousands out out of a little boy's lunch. They were in that boat as they saw Jesus walking across the water, the stormy waters of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter even got out of the boat and walked for a little bit to Jesus. And then they heard him as Jesus silenced that stormy sea with just a word. Finally, They saw and they even touched Jesus after his resurrection. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses of those those instances where he revealed his glory here on earth, his divinity as the Son of God. Now, even courtrooms today and, and even our own common sense tells us eyewitness testimony, lacking, I guess, video evidence, eyewitness testimony is the most trustworthy thing. And that's what the Bible is. It is eyewitness testimony. So what's the problem then? Why do so many doubt that what the Word of God says is true? Why do we doubt that what the Word of God says is true? I know you may be thinking to yourself, I don't doubt it. When I read these stories, I believe that they took place. But do we ever read these stories or read certain portions of Scripture? And maybe here in church, when we're we're surrounded by fellow Christians, we may nod and say, yeah, I believe that. I confess that to be true. But then when we walk out those doors, we fail to put those biblical truths to practice in our lives. We think about things like, how important it is for us to, be, to have a regular devotional life, to be in the Word every day. And we nod along with that here in church, and then we fail to do that in our daily lives. Or we think of what the Bible says regarding sex and marriage, and we say, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds true, I agree with that, and yet we don't put those applications into practice when it comes to our own families, our own children, or our grandchildren, we think maybe we're exempt from those commands of the Lord for some reason. 
you know of many people who like the idea of Jesus. The idea of Jesus loves me, this I know, but they follow that up by saying, no, that's really all I want to know. If you did watch the Super Bowl last Sunday, you maybe noticed a few commercials entitled, He Gets Us. That's the kind of Jesus that a lot of people can accept. The Jesus who is is relevant. The Jesus who knows what it's like to live as a human in this broken and fallen world. That's the kind of Jesus a lot of people can accept. But they also want to reserve the right for themselves to pick and choose which parts of Scripture that they want to actually believe and actually accept, but, but cut out the parts that they don't like. And in many cases, the parts that they want to cut out are the miracle accounts. Because they seem to defy reality. They seem to defy their reason. And they want to rip the, the miracle accounts out. You'll notice if you watch those He Gets Us commercials, there was no mention of any of Jesus' miracles. No mention of Him suffering and dying on the cross. No mention of His resurrection. No mention of His transfiguration. He was simply a relevant moral hero in those commercials. But Peter won't allow us to do that. He won't allow us to just rip pages out of our Bibles saying, I I don't like that, I don't believe that, it's more than I can understand and accept. He says this, and this is his jumping off point. He goes back to transfiguration. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from within the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came out of heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter was there. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' glory. He saw him glow like the sun from head to toe, his his, uh, clothing whiter than any launderer could ever make them. He saw Moses and Elijah there standing and talking with Jesus. These long dead heroes of faith, not dead at all, but alive. He witnessed as the, the heavens were ripped open and God the Father spoke from heaven to confirm that Jesus was in fact his son and to to place his stamp of approval on what Jesus had done in his life up to this point and what he would descend that mountain to do. Peter saw it. And he wasn't alone. You know, we may wonder, why why take Peter, James, and John up there? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, if a crime was committed, it took two or three witnesses to actually convict someone of a crime. And so this was to validate, to verify, to make sure one person can lie, right, about something they've seen. But two or three? Peter couldn't have gotten away with telling this lie, if it was a lie, because James and John were there as well. And the same is true of the greatest miracle in the Bible, the most important one, the one on which our faith is built, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of our Lord. That was witnessed by many eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists at least six different groups or individuals that Jesus appeared to after he had risen from the dead. He walked with those disciples on the road to Emmaus and ate bread with them. He appeared to his disciples in the upper room, in a locked room. He appeared to them and he ate fish with them and he invited them to touch him. Finally, he appeared to Paul on his road to Damascus and knocked him on his butt and turned him from a persecutor 
of the Christian faith and to the greatest missionary of the Christian faith. These are all eyewitness accounts. The Bible is trustworthy because it is written by the people who saw Jesus' majesty, who saw his glory. Their words are are trustworthy. But maybe that's not enough. Maybe just the words of eyewitnesses isn't good enough for you. So Peter says, there's something else. He says, we also have the completely reliable prophetic word. So if the eyewitness testimony isn't enough for you, then you can also go back and do your homework. You can go back into the Old Testament and see how God the Holy Spirit was dropping breadcrumbs throughout those thousands of years to lead to the promised Savior. For example, anyone who knew their Old Testament could look back and see, well, the Savior is supposed to be born in this little town called Bethlehem. The, the Savior is supposed to be someone who has grown up in Nazareth. He will be called a Nazarene. According to Isaiah 53, the, the Savior would be nothing to look at. He wouldn't be like Rihanna soaring above the field in glory, but, but he would be cloaked in humility and suffering. Anyone who knew the book of Deuteronomy could know that that the Holy Spirit planted that breadcrumb, that identifying mark of who the Savior would be, he would be hung on a cursed tree. And you put all of these breadcrumbs together, connect all the dots, and there's only one person in all of human history that meets that description. And that is Jesus. We have not only eyewitness testimony, but we have the the Old Testament, which verifies that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior. And for that reason, Peter says, you do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now this kind of gets back to the whole question of why was Jesus transfigured and why now? The the why of transfiguration is that Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that when he walked down that mountain of glory, He would be walking into the valley of his passion and his suffering at the hands of men. And he knew what that would look like to his disciples who had just witnessed his glory with their own eyes. They would begin to doubt. They would begin to question. They would begin to wonder, how can this be the Son of God if he's allowing himself to be tortured by the hands of Gentiles? How can this be the Son of God if He allows Himself to be nailed to a tree to die? How can this be the Son of God if He allows the powers of darkness to overwhelm Him and overtake Him? And so Jesus plants this last vision of glory in their minds. He wants them to remember this so that it will strengthen their faith. He wants them to be sure that It wasn't the devil, it wasn't Judas, it wasn't Caiaphas, it wasn't Pilate. None of them could have possibly taken Jesus' life from him. He wanted them to be sure that Jesus was going to Jerusalem willingly. That he freely offered his body and his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. That he was completely willing even as the Son of God, to serve as their suffering servant by offering his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. 
the days before Peter, James, and John were looking very dark. And so Jesus wanted this light, this image of his glory to be able to guide them and be with them throughout that dark valley of Jesus' passion. It kind of feels like we're living through dark days, like we're walking in the valley of the shadow of death still today, doesn't it? It seems like the powers of evil are growing ever stronger, and not only out there in the world, but even in our own hearts and lives and families. It seems like the devil is growing ever more powerful. As I mentioned last week at the Grammys, those people in Hollywood, they don't even try to hide it anymore. They openly declare their allegiance to the prince of darkness. Again, it's not just there. The rule of Satan takes place in our homes and our lives too. In our bitter arguments and our disagreements with the people we are supposed to love. In our marriages that seem to be more of a struggle than a blessing some days. In raising children and they don't always seem to be obedient and we quickly lose our patience with them. We can see the power of darkness working in our lives too. Now that shouldn't surprise us, actually. And that goes back to that theme of being able to verify with Scripture what is happening right now. You see, in this very same letter, Peter told us, expect this. Expect that when you look around, you're not going to see the glory of God. You're not going to see Jesus ruling in power on this earth. You're going to see the exact opposite. It's going to seem very dark. Peter wrote, first, know this. In the last days, scoffers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts. They will say, where is this promise coming of his? For from the time that our fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning of the creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. For the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow to do what he promised. Instead, he is patient for your sakes, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. When we look out and we see the dark times in which we live, where people will fight for the right to murder their own unborn children in the womb, where even the most basic building blocks of the society and the creation that God gave us right from the beginning are being attacked on every side, not only the family, not only other institutions, not only marriage, but even gender itself has come under attack. We see that. And it can be hard some days, can't it? It can feel like maybe it all just is a lie. You know, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus when he allows tens of thousands of people to die in an earthquake in Turkey and Syria? Where is Jesus when it seems like not a day can go by when we don't hear about a mass shooting somewhere in our country? Where is Jesus when so many horrible things are happening on every side? It can get us down and it can seem to, to smother our faith and destroy our hope. And if you don't ever feel that way, well, then you're a better Christian than I am. But the Lord hasn't left us alone. Just like those disciples, as they're traveling through the dark days of Lent, of Jesus' passion, he gave them this light to, to sustain their faith and their hope throughout that darkness. He has given us a light too. This is the light 
that guides us through these dark times and through this dark world. But you have to be in it for it to light up your life and to strengthen your faith. You have to be reading it, meditating on it, hearing it preached and taught. And it will light up your life. It will sustain your hope. It will remind you that this is exactly what God said would happen in the last days. That they would be very dark. That it would seem like the powers of the devil are, are overwhelming the light of Jesus Christ. But because we know it's happening, we also know that Jesus is in control of it all. That is a word worth paying attention to. Worthy of our full attention. And then at the very end, Peter, as the kids would say these days, he, he, he drops the mic, right? He makes one final point that is undebatable, proving the truthfulness and the veracity of Scripture. He says, we know this above all else. No prophecy of Scripture comes about from someone's own interpretation. In fact, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is describing what we call the miracle of verbal inspiration. Meaning that every single word of the Bible was given by God the Holy Spirit to the men who authored the Bible. Every single word, every single letter is given directly by God. And the picture there is a nautical one. Uh, being carried along is kind of like the, the writers were a sailboat and the Holy Spirit was blowing into their sail, telling them exactly what they should write down. So if the eyewitness testimony doesn't do it for you, if the, the fact that you can verify everything that happened in the New Testament as being prophesied in the Old Testament doesn't do it for you, then here we have the final proof. Every word in Scripture comes from God. Every word, every letter is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And that's so important for us, especially in these days, when truth seems like such a constantly changing thing. Where, where truth can, something can be true for me and, and maybe not true for you. Where it seems like in everything that happens in the world today, the, the thing you're supposed to trust is the science or what the so-called experts have to say. Even though you know as well as I do that the science and what the so-called experts have to say is changing every single day. I won't get too deep into it, but you know as well as I do if you've been paying attention to the news that just about every single thing the experts were telling us during the COVID pandemic has changed. They've changed their minds. And they've proven that they are not trustworthy. You know, just in the 37 years I've been on this earth, how much has changed. And you who are older, you know how much has changed, especially regarding morality. You can't listen to what the experts say or what is politically correct or what the polls say. But you can listen to what the Word of God says because it does not change. Of that we can be sure and of that we must be sure. We must be sure that we are standing on a solid foundation, not of men's ideas or imaginations, but on the truth revealed by God himself. That's why we can speak with certainty. That's why we have a firm hope and a solid faith. 
So that whether we're talking about abortion or absolution, whether we're talking about church attendance or child raising, whether we're talking about the future or the past, whether we're talking about life in this world or life eternal, we know that it's not just the ideas of men. It's nothing so fickle that it will change tomorrow. But that is the, it is the eternal and unchanging truth of God given directly to the authors of Scripture by God the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you watched the, the halftime show last week. Just in the little clips I saw, it seemed like all the theatrics in the world couldn't cover up the fact that the artist named Rihanna is not a very talented singer. But that doesn't really matter. If you think that stuff is too good to be true, that's fine. But the transfiguration of our Lord is not too good to be true. It is exactly what really happened. It is eyewitnessed by Peter, James, and John. It is also in alignment with all of the Old Testament. We have the, the breadcrumbs from the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit planted leading us to see that Jesus truly is the Son of God and we are also assured that the Word of God is the inspired Word of God, not of men. We do well to pay close attention to this unchanging Word in the dark days in which we live. And as we leave this Mount of Transfiguration today, and as we start Lent already this coming Wednesday, Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday, keep this image in your mind. This image of Jesus in all of his glory. Because Lent is a dark and a hard season. It seems like the powers of evil are overcoming even the Son of God. Keep this image in mind, though, which proves that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He willingly gave up that glory so that he could suffer and die for your sins. And the presence of Moses and Elijah there, they're proof that Jesus is going to come back one day and take us all with him to be with him in the glory of heaven forever. Amen.